following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Okay, good morning, good morning. My live. If you can hear my voice, go ahead and grab your, your Bibles, go back to your seats. Good morning. good to be together again in the house of the Lord after many weeks of, of being out. But as I say, absence makes the heart grow fonder, right? So it's a pleasure to be with you. If you have your Bibles, please open them to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We'll begin in verse 20. In just a moment. Before we begin, we're going to pray for those who are still sick, still dealing with the after effects of uh, either COVID or the flu or some other virus that's been working its way through our families. Think uh, notably for the, the DeCourcy's, for Jake and Amy, for the Norios. Uh, any others that we know that are sick that we can pray for that I'm not thinking of at this moment? Yenorios and, and Jake and Amy. Okay, well, if any come to your mind while we're praying, you're welcome to pray for them as well. Uh, but let's pray for those families, and then we'll, we'll study God's Word together. Uh, Father, we're grateful for your time in uh, the Word, and we ask that it would be edifying and encouraging to us. We're grateful to, to gather, and uh, especially in light of not being able to to meet these last few weeks. Uh, Lord, there's nothing like worshiping together in person uh, with brothers and sisters, and I do pray that this would be a balm to our weary souls and uh, our hearts would be warmed uh, by the fire of your word and our souls would be gladdened and encouraged by what we hear and sing and study this morning. God, I pray particularly for the Oreos and the DeCourcy's as they continue to recover from the sicknesses that they've had. Uh, Lord, we pray particularly for Amy and for Sandra as they uh, continue to uh, grow the child within them. And Lord, that they would uh, be healthy and rest. And uh, Lord, the, this time is already difficult with all the other challenges that this season brings. Uh, Lord, this point in their pregnancies is not fun either. So we pray particularly for them that to be encouraged. Pray for John and for Jake as they help and they serve their wives and as they lead their families. We pray for rest and health for them and recovery. We pray for those who are sick and um, are ill, that they too would be encouraged by your word. We pray for those who are out of town or traveling and so are not here. We pray, God, that they would be encouraged also by your word and spirit. We also pray, God, for those who are not here because they've got some challenging sin in their lives. They've got competing desires and affections. We pray, God, that you would cut through them and show them how beautiful you are and how worthy it is to worship you and that they would be drawn again to you and to your people and that their lives would be restored to fellowship God, would you help uh, them see and be confronted by their own sin? And Lord, they, they would come not so that they would check a box, but that they would come to know and worship you and to be known by you. God, we're grateful for all of these good gifts you've given us. We pray for these things, as always, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, last, last week we began or re-began our series in John. We studied John together as a church many years ago, one of the first Gospels we looked at as a church, and we stopped about halfway through John there in the beginning of chapter 12. And the reason for that is because John breaks pretty evenly from chapter 12 onwards as the first part of Jesus's ministry in his life, really the first really three years of his public ministry, and then from chapter 12 onward really is the ending of his public ministry and the beginning of the last week of Jesus's life. So all the space that John takes up to record Jesus's life and ministry in the first half of John, he takes that same amount of space and time 
to describe and to record the last week of Jesus' life. So three years for the first 12 chapters, and then one week in really less than the last 12. So that's important for us because John has a theme and a motif in his letter that he wants us to see. And so he, he slows down and pulls focus a little bit more in this last half of his book on Jesus particularly as the sacrifice or the lamb that would be sacrificed for the sins of the world. This was mentioned and alluded to all throughout the first part, part of John, and now he's slowing down and recounting Jesus' last days, his last week on earth, because there's particular themes and focuses that he wants us to see and know about Christ that we would, as God's people, respond appropriately to. And so that's where we pick up really in the middle of John in chapter 12. He has just risen Lazarus from the dead. He had celebrated the feast at Bethany, and now he's come into Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry. He was celebrated and welcomed by the crowds there. They laid laid palm uh, leaves down. They worshipped him, called him Hosanna, son of David, king of Israel. And he gained a lot of traction and notoriety as he entered into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover for the last time, his third Passover and his last Passover. And we also see in the beginning of that passage that the Pharisees now have had it up through their necks with Jesus, and they were, they were upset about all the people that were leaving them to follow Jesus. You notice in verse 19 of chapter 12, the Pharisees said to one another, see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So they're upset, they're jealous, they're angry. And so a couple of things have solidified for Jesus. One is that his ministry to the public is now over, and two, the Pharisees are now in their most hardened point where they have now set themselves, resolved themselves to kill Jesus, and that'll play out in the remaining days of Jesus' life, and John will record that for us. And so we pick up in verse 20 of chapter 12, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. So let's turn our attention there. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies and bears fruit, it bears much fruit if it dies. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered, and others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And so Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have this light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment, his commandment, is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. Would you pray again with me? Father, we give thanks to you for your word. By your spirit, open our minds and eyes to see the truth of it, and encourage and embolden us to walk in light of it. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. So at this point in the story of Jesus, a chapter is closing on his public ministry, and a new one is beginning. Really, this is the beginning of the end for Jesus' life. As we mentioned before, this is the last week that he is alive on earth before he's arrested and crucified under Pontius Pilate. But ultimately, what we see happening is the closing of a chapter, not simply on the public ministry, but the widening of the scope to whom the gospel that he has been preaching will go. See, up until now, he's at some times entertained some Gentiles and those outside of the specific tribe of Israel and Judah, but now the widening of the scope is beginning to take place and the clarity of the gospel is being made more clear to those outside of Israel. This is why John now records, after verse 19, the whole world going after Jesus, the Pharisee says. In verse 20, the very next sentence is that those who would come to worship and know God in the synagogues and in the temple come to see and have a conversation with Jesus. These are Greeks, not necessarily converts, but God-fearers, those who are interested, wanting to study and know and perhaps worship God, but were not quite proselytes as Jews. They were welcomed into the outer court of the temple, the court of the Gentiles, but they were not welcomed inside the inner court of the temple. There was a literal wall that would divide the Gentile court, courtyard from the Jewish courtyard. In fact, this is what we see Jesus abolishing, Paul would say, in his own flesh. He breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Greek, between these two men, so making one. So when Jesus is going to the temple to worship Belonging to the, the sacrifices and the celebration of Passover, these Greeks, these Gentiles, would come to Jesus and seek an audience and a conversation with him. So the scope of God's work is now widening through Jesus, no longer just entertaining that with the Jews, but now more pointedly and more clearly widening so that all of the world, as the Pharisees say, truer than they thought, would come to Jesus. And notice what he says here when they come and ask an audience with him. Instead of necessarily granting that audience or answering the question directly, he says in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you're familiar with the rest of the gospel, you know that the hour he has been preaching has been at hand. It has been drawing near. In fact, many things he has done or not done because the hour was not yet at hand. But here, because the, Jew, the Gentiles have now come to seek an audience, something is triggered. Jesus now knows, because of these Greeks coming to have a conversation with him, that the hour itself is now at hand for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
So we now have the widening of the scope from the Jews to the Gentiles to the all of the world and the apprehension of the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus knows that this marks a shift in his own ministry and to count down the final remaining days until he gives himself for the purpose and the mission for which he ultimately came. When we look at our text, we really see two parts to it. The first part is fairly short, really the first six verses, chapter, verses 20 through 26, controls the rest of the chapter, at least as I understand it. And we see that because there's a couple principles laid out in this first section that are explained in the second section. So verses 20 through 26 has two principles in it and are explained in verses 27 through 50, the rest of the chapter, how we should live in light of those principles. And so what I want to do is outline those two principles for you in those first six verses and then look to how those are explained in the text beyond it. So look again here. The first principle is this, that eternal life is found in the self-denying life lived for the glory of God. That's the first principle outlined here in the first six verses. When he says that the Son of Man has come to be glorified, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, he says in verse 24, he uses the analogy of a grain of wheat which falls to the earth, sowing seeds into the ground. And unless it dies, there is no fruit, there is no harvest, there is no yield. The seed buried into the planet must die before it germinates and brings forth life. And so he says in verse 25, as a way to explain this analogy, whoever loses his life, loves his life, loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So the eternal life is gained or is found, he says, by hating your life in this world. If you love your life, you lose it. But if you hate your life in this world, you will keep it for eternal life. And that is the more worthy and desirable outcome. So we do not want to lose but gain eternal life. And so the analogy of the seed tells us that in order to gain eternal life, we must, he says, hate our life in this world. Or to borrow the analogy of the seed, we must first die before life would be created through us. Eternal life, he says, is found in the self-denying life. This doesn't mean that you hate yourself, you have a low view of yourself, that you walk around with low self-esteem. That's not the point here at all. This is simply a contrast between love and hate. It means that you do not have, as your highest affection, your own desires, your own life. But a greater affection and love is for God and His glory, as we see at the end of our chapter. For those who are too afraid to confess their desire to know and love Christ because of the Pharisees and being kicked out of the synagogue, they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So Jesus is teaching the principle that if you are to have eternal life, your life must be like the grain of wheat that would fall to the ground. And if you desire to bear fruit of eternal life, your life must first be given to the Lord. You must, like that seed, first die. Die to yourself. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus will talk about taking up your cross and following him. The Apostle Paul will speak of being crucified with Christ. This is a self-denying life that is lived not for ourselves, but for Christ. The cause of Christ, and ultimately, he says, for the glory of God. He is pointing our attention to worship God as a supreme author of all life to whom all glory and honor and dominion is due. So the principle laid out here in Jesus' teaching, and this is really the summary of all that he's taught in the gospel so far, is that if we are to have eternal life, it is to be found only in the self-denying life lived for the glory of God and God alone. In other words, he says, if you are to take up your life, it must first be laid down. This is what it looks like. Allow yourself to be sown by God into the world. You give yourself over to the principles of God's word so that he may raise you and lift you up. In fact, this is what Jesus indeed would say. He will lay down his life 
and he alone will take it back up again. That's the first principle, that eternal life is found in the self-denying life lived for the glory of God. The second is similar. It is that the Christian life is found in the self-denying life lived for the glory of God. We see that in verse 26. Just as after he gives this analogy of the seed that must first die before it brings forth fruit, and he says whoever loves his life in this world will keep it, will lose it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life, he speaks then of discipleship. In verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So here he speaks not only of how we find eternal life, but also how we live the Christian life, the life of a disciple. He says, not only must you give yourself to God, whatever it may cost, not only must you die to yourself so that you be made born again, think of John chapter 3 as he speaks to Nicodemus, but also to live the life found in the Gospels is in the self-denying live, life lived for the glory of God. So the eternal life is found in denying ourselves and living for the glory of God. And the life of the Christian, the disciple, is found in the self-denying life lived for the glory of God. So he says you have to follow his example, which he'll explain in the latter part of our chapter. He will lay down his own life. He will serve others, and he will be lifted up. Now this lifting up we read about, we'll see from verse 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, will have two meanings. One, of course, lifted up on the cross, the crucifixion. He'll be nailed to the cross, and he'll be lifted up for all to see. The shame and the humiliation of his death will be on full display, not only to those around him, but to the cosmic powers, who for a moment think they have victory over God. But ultimately, the second meaning of the lifted up is really the vindication of God and the resurrection, because that is not the death of Christ. Ultimately, we see God raises his son up, and so he is lifted above the principalities and powers. And in his own death, we see the death of the enemy and of Satan. So he says he will be lifted up. So what's he speaking of? He's speaking of discipleship. The Christian life is to be found in the laying down of our lives, as Jesus laid down his own, and the lifting up of ourselves for the glory of God. In other words, we can put it like this, the essence of discipleship is that we live for the glory of God because God lives for the glory of God. Not only is Jesus our example here, but notice to what he says. He says, Father, glorify your name in verse 28. And the Father responds audibly to Jesus, I have and I will. So when he says in verse 23 that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, he's speaking of God's work in glorifying himself through his Son's death and his suffering and ultimately in his resurrection. So discipleship really means living for the glory of God, not simply because it's what Jesus commands of us, but because God himself is about the business of glorifying God. You notice the, the verbs here are God working in and through Jesus to glorify himself. When Jesus says, glorify your name in verse 28, God says, I have and I will. The theme that runs throughout the rest of this book will be the glory of Christ here in the hour of his death on full display at the hands of God himself. So the essence of discipleship is that we live for the glory of God because God lives for the glory of God. The chief end of man, as we know, in the confession states, is that we, what? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. So what we strive for and live for is exactly the center of the bullseye that Jesus paints for us, that God would be glorified. And his commission is to so see that through that he himself would die. And it is in his death, in the lifting up of himself on the cross, that the glory of God is accomplished. And so sets the pattern for his disciples to follow him. For he says, where I am, there my servant will be also. 
So as he begins to explain what he means by the hour of his death now at hand, what he means for the Son of Man to be lifted up, he now says, you will follow me. And the same God-glorifying suffering, the same God-glorifying, self-denying life, as I go, you will follow. And so the first two principles here in our text that we are to live and pattern our lives around is that eternal life is to be found in our life, which is self-denying, living for the glory of God, and that the Christian life is found in the self-denying life lived for the glory of God. We live for the glory of God because God lives for the glory of God. Here's the main point then. In the rest of the passage, we see that Christians, then, like, like Christ, must be resolved to the sovereign purposes of God, whatever the cost. Disciples of Jesus must follow their master in their resolve and commitment to the sovereign purposes of God in our lives and for his glory, whatever the cost may be for us. Now, it's easy enough to say and put on paper that God can ask anything of us and we would do it for his glory. But Jesus commands us to actually walk in light of that truth. We must resolve ourselves like he has to the purposes of God and the glorifying of himself in his name, whatever the cost. So in verse 27, he says, my soul is troubled. It's anguished. It's, it's irritated. It's, it's vexed. And what shall I say? Now, this translation in the ESV is a little different than I think is accurate. You may have it, Father, save me from this hour, with a question mark, as if this is a rhetorical, that this is not actually what Jesus is praying, but what he thinks he ought not to pray. But I think instead, this is actually what Jesus does indeed pray. We see similar sentiment there in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prays for the cup, if it's possible, to be passed from him. And he says, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. Well, the same sentiment is here. As he prays, I believe, Father, save me from this hour. The troubling of his soul is on full display as his anguish begins to be poured out. The author of Hebrews reminds us of this as well in that hour where Jesus in anguish pours out his soul. The heart and the cry of his prayer can be nothing other than, Father, save me. But then he is resolved in the second part of verse 27, but for this purpose... I have come to this hour. As he says in the garden, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. As we pray in the Lord's prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's the same call to be resolved for whatever God would demand of his servant, that he would fulfill it. And that his servant would be resolved and committed to see it through, whatever it may cost him. The picture here, though, just in one or two short verses, is worth meditating on. We recognize that the hour that is now at hand is a costly one. It's an expensive one on the part of Christ, and it will be costly. This resolve and commitment to the sovereign purposes of God, whatever the cost may be, will be extremely expensive for him who will lay down his life for the sake of that purpose to accomplish what God has set forth in this hour for Jesus. But what does it cost him? It costs him his life, ultimately. It costs him his reputation. It costs him his followers. It will cost him his life. But what ultimately is gained? Look in verse 30. Jesus will answer, this voice has come for your sake and not mine. The judgment now has come to this world, and the ruler of this world will be cast out. So in Christ's fulfillment of the purposes of God and the laying of his own life down at this hour of his death, what will be the benefit? 
What is gained by his obedience to the Father? Victory over darkness and over the ruler of this world. That, of course, is Satan. And in verse 35, Jesus will say to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk in the light that you have, lest the darkness overtake you. And the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. So he speaks to the the sad and, and desperate reality of this world living in darkness and the people of this world walking in darkness, blind without any knowledge of where they're going. They cannot see and they do not know. But in Jesus' death on the cross, though it has cost him greatly, he has gained for himself and us victory over the darkness that plagues the world and over the ruler of this world who is cast out. No longer does he rule this world in darkness. No longer can he continue to deceive the nations with power. No longer can he rule over our hearts as we once were, but victory is ours. Victory over darkness. He, of course, is the light of the world. He's come into that darkness, and the cost, though great to himself, means that we have victory over that darkness. There's another thing that's gained, of course, as the light comes into the world, and there's victory over darkness, we see in verse 36. While you have the light, that is, while Jesus lives for just a few more days, believe in the light that you might become sons of light. So here not only is victory over darkness accomplished in Jesus' death, and not only is the enemy and the ruler of this world cast out, but now the opportunity to be adopted as sons and daughters of light, offered and given to those who would receive it. You're brought into the household and the family of God because you believe and have received in Christ as a son of God who has accomplished what God has intended to do. In fact, just go back to chapter 1 of this gospel. And John, he hints at this from the very beginning in verse 9. He calls Jesus the true light. Chapter 1, verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But listen to this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what's happening as Jesus lays down his life and is lifted up on the cross, ultimately is demonstrating victory over darkness and the offer for all those who are in darkness to step into the light and become children of God to be members of the household of God, sons and daughters with full privileges and rights as royalty because of what Jesus has done for us. So though it will be costly for him who lays down his own life, what is gained by Jesus' death is greater. Victory over the darkness and the ruler of this world and adoption as sons of light. But not only will it be costly for him who lays down his life, but it will be costly for those who reject the light in favor for the darkness. Notice what he continues to say in verse 30 through 36. This voice, he says, has come for your sake, not mine. And now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going. And so the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? They rightly understood that Jesus was referring to his death. Who is this Son of Man? This Son of Man didn't fit the picture in the mold of him who they imagined or believed or misunderstood from the law. And so Jesus says to them, The light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light lest the darkness overtake you. He continues to tell them that if you continue and persist in darkness, 
You will be overtaken by the darkness. You will be unable to be saved from the darkness. It's costly, ultimately, for those who reject the light, for the permanency of the dark. He says at one point, the light will be snuffed out. While you have the light, he says, verse 36, believe in the light, that you might become sons of the light. If you persist and continue in darkness, and the light is gone from you, you will not be overcome. You will not be in, given the sun of light, but be overcome by the darkness. So the Father's word, he then says, is to be spoken as judgment to those who ultimately reject the light. Look in verse 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. Who is that judge? The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Those words, of course, are the words that his father has commanded him to preach. And so the father's word, spoken by the son, brings life to those whose eyes have been opened by God, but that same word will then carry judgment to any of those who reject those words or ultimately reject the ones who speak them. The Father's word comes to either bring life or carry judgment. Those who receive the word by God's grace, opening their eyes to see the beauty and the glory and the truth of the light, or those who remain in darkness and blinded spiritually are judged by that same word. But what is the word that judges men or brings life? Jesus' life and his death are the word spoken to the world concerning the most important matters of our lives, the salvation of our souls and the purpose of our very existence, that is to glorify God. The word that Christ preaches is the word he preaches with his life, with his ministry, and ultimately with his death. He preaches a word of God's life and of God's judgment that all of our lives are to fall under the glory of God and be lived for the glory of God lest we be overtaken by darkness and remained cast into judgment. So God's words are spoken through Jesus. This is why Jesus is called in the beginning of this gospel, the word of God. He's the one whose life speaks God's very word, demonstrates God's very nature and his desire and plan and purposes to save souls that they may live for the glory of God. That is, in other words, the cross of Christ speaks to our need of redemption and rescue from the darkness that we've plunged ourselves into, the sins and the corruption of our heart. And the cross of Christ not only speaks to the need of redemption and rescue, but it offers atonement for sin and pardon for the sinner. But it's not only this offer of life, but it's a word of judgment to those who put their trust in other things. It's a word of warning and of judgment to those who would ultimately desire the darkness because they love it more than the light. What do we see on the cross? It's life for those who believe, but it is a warning of judgment to those who don't. What we see on the cross is judgment poured out on Jesus himself for the sins of his own people. And that same judgment, we are told by the cross, will be experienced by any of us who refuse the light and cling to the darkness. So if you're, if you're in darkness and you look to the cross and you see Jesus there taking on the sins of the world, and you do not see light or beauty or life, but instead see something to be pitied, mocked, and scorned, that judgment that he takes on himself for the sake of his people remains on us. The judgment poured out on Christ for the sins of his people will be experienced by those who refuse the light, reject it, and cling on to the darkness of their own heart and sin. But why would they do this? What are the reasons for the rejection of those who see the light of Jesus and deny it? The text gives us two. In verses 39 through 40, John quotes from Isaiah. He 
says, because they have blind eyes and hard hearts. They have blind eyes and hard hearts. That is, they cannot rightly see because they're blind. Their hearts are not soft enough to understand and feel what God is truly doing. They're blinded by their sin and their corruption. They're unable to see Jesus as the Son of God. In fact, we see God sovereignly bestows this blindness on them, and He alone can sovereignly save them from it. He draws them to Himself. He gives them light, both of nature and of Christ's own very words, and He says, believe. But those who have blind eyes and hard hearts refuse because they cannot see rightly what God has put in front of them. For a moment, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul himself speaks of this same thing. In Romans chapter 1, in verse 18, the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Do you see the contrast there? Those who are blind and whose hearts are hard look at the cross and hear the word of the cross and see the power of the cross and they say, that's silly. That's stupid. But for those who are being saved, they see power. They see wisdom. They see salvation. They see Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called in verse 24, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So what's happening is that God opens the eyes of the blind to see the beauty and the value and the glory of Christ on the cross. Christ's glory does not come from his ascension or his resurrection or even his intercession now. It comes from him on the cross. He is glorified in his death and in his resurrection. So when you look at the cross, the word it speaks is of the glory of God. And only those who, God's eyes, who, who God has opened their eyes will see it and as, as beauty, as wisdom, as power. The rest will see it as foolishness. But not only in verse 39 and 40 do they reject Jesus because they are blind and have hard hearts, but back in John we see in verse 42 and 43 that they have a fear of man. This is the case with some of the other leaders. Verse 42, Nevertheless, many of the, even the authorities believed, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Why? For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So they had in their hearts a fear of man in their rejection, and they had a love of man's approval rather than God's. Well, friends, just think for a moment for some of the reasons that we rejected Christ before we were saved by God. The blindness of our own eyes, the hardness of our own hearts, or the reasons that we felt that our our attention and our approval should come first from man and not from God. Such is the case here with those Pharisees and those leaders in the synagogue, that because they did not want to be kicked out of what they grew comfortable and what they knew, they failed and refused to confess Christ. They did not take up their cross. They did not die to themselves or deny themselves, proving ultimately that they are not disciples. There's a time that will come for all of us where we have to, like these Pharisees, perhaps like Nicodemus, make a confession that Christ is the Son of God. And the cost of that confession may be great. It may be our relationships. It may be positions at work. It may be friendships. It may be difficulties within our own families. In fact, it may be, as it is for many Christians around the world, the cost of our own lives. But this is the life that Christ has called us to live because this is the life Christ himself has laid down. So because we were blind, we needed Christ to give us sight. Because we had hard hearts, we needed Christ to renew us. Because we had a fear of man and a love of their approval, 
we must have been overcome by a love for God and his glory if we ever hope to live as disciples of Jesus and find eternal life. What this comes down to is this, friends. The glory of Christ on the cross must be the animating force of our lives as Christians. It's the thing that draws us into action and into faithful living. What does it mean to have the glory of Christ as the animating force of our lives? Think about it this way. We act according to that which we value most highly. And what we value, we often think of things that are beautiful and worthy. And so when we begin to see Jesus on the cross as not an ugly stumbling block, but the power and wisdom of God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, or as the light of the world that God glorifies himself through for the salvation of sinners, we see that something beautiful and magnificent and lovely, not strange and off-putting. And because of its beauty, we value it, we cherish it, and desire it. And because we desire it, our lives are structured around it. We're moved to be faithful, to live in light of what it demands of us, in light of what it has accomplished for us. So the glory of Christ on the cross sits at the center of what we should animate ourselves to do as we live, whatever that is. There's many ways in which the glory of Christ is to be lived out in your own life. But it first begins with beholding the glory of Christ on the cross and its beauty, seeing the value that it is for sinners like you and I, and being so moved by such a value that we live for the glory of God, whatever it may cost us, however it may be demanded of us. And so we said earlier that the essence of discipleship is living for the glory of God. Let me put to you now that the heart of discipleship then is loving the glory of God. And this is why Jesus will go through with the hour that was at hand because he loved the glory of God. He was committed that God's name would be glorified even in his death. He was assured and convinced that God has and will do what he has promised to do for his glory. And it would be a benefit to his people. So if the essence of discipleship is living for the glory of God, the heart of our discipleship is loving the glory of God. We must love it more than the glory and the praise of men. We must love it more than the satisfaction and comfort we may gain from our work, our jobs. We must love it more than the comfort we derive from our families or even ourselves. We must love the glory of God more than anything so that when God demands that we lay our lives down, when we follow our Savior, we would do so not with hesitation, but with confidence that he who lays down his life will be lifted again at the final day. That's the ultimate hope that we live in. Because Christ on the cross glorifies God, the beauty and the value for us sinners is motivating that we may live faithfully in light of it. We may live for the glory of God, not the praise of men. More than anything else in our lives, we see central to our discipleship, Jesus on the cross as God's glory. The rest of our, our study in John will see how this animating force works itself out as Jesus goes through the last final days of his life, ultimately to the cross, into the tomb, and again from the grave. Let's pray. Father, there's, as always, much left on the table. But I, I do pray, God, that the effect of this word spoken this morning would, would be that we see clearly that the, the center of our lives must be Christ and Him crucified because it is on the cross of Christ that you are glorified and that you have shown the power and the greatness of your name and what it means and demands of our lives. Lord, there may be some here who are not sure if they really see it that way. If they've been to church a lot and they've never really looked at Jesus in, in the Gospels and on the cross as a person to be worshipped. 
the cross where Jesus lays down his life as a thing of beauty. Lord, I pray for that particular soul, Lord, that you would now open their eyes to see this as a strange but beautiful work of your love. For some of us, God, we have seen it, we have believed it and received it, but that love has grown cold and our eyes that were once fixed on the beauty of the cross of Christ have wandered to other things. We've fallen in love with this world again. We've fallen in love with our life again. But God, the promise of your word is that we who hate our life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And so help us to fix our eyes again on Christ, that the glory of Christ displayed on the cross would be the center and the central animating motivating factor of our discipleship. So for some, Lord, this would be the first time we see the glory of Christ displayed in the cross, a thing to be worshipped and honored, a thing of beauty and glory, and for others to be reminded and to renew our love for the thing that changed us. May our hearts again be stirred to worship as we think about Christ on the cross and the work of your purposes accomplished through the cross. Ultimately, the benefit for us of having been freed from the bonds of sin and shame, taken out of the kingdom of darkness, brought into his marvelous light, and the privilege and the right to become children of God, sons of light. Would stir our hearts and focus our attention on Jesus, the Son of God, the light of the world. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee, let the water and the blood from my wound inside which flow be of sin the a book you save from wrath.